If you or a loved one was facing a critical medical procedure, say on your heart, you would want your surgeon to have the best information available for their decision making, wouldn't you? That's where the Advanced Imaging and Modeling, or AIM Lab, through OSF Innovation comes in. The very first time that we ever printed a heart for pre-surgical planning, it changed the surgery. That just locked us in. Everybody was like, this is unexpected, you know, we have to continue this. That's Dr. Matthew Bramlett, pediatric cardiologist and director of the Advanced Imaging and Modeling Lab at Jump Trading Simulation and Education Center. And I'm Shelley Dankoff, your host for Health Accelerated. On this episode of Health Accelerated, taking a closer look, and by that I mean a three-dimensional closer look, using virtual reality and 3D printing in pre-surgical planning. The Advanced Imaging and Modeling, or AIM Lab, through OSF Innovation and Jump Simulation and Education Center in Peoria, Illinois, helps surgeons and others make best decisions for their patients thanks to its segmentation service. Here to discuss this work are Dr. Matthew Bramlett, a pediatric cardiologist and director of the Advanced Imaging and Modeling Lab at Jump Simulation and Education Center, and Sister Pieta Keller, an innovation engineer with OSF Innovation. So before we get into the conversation about AIM and what it does, I want to get a little background on for both of you. So Dr. Bramlett, what led you to this point? What's your background? Well, I'm a pediatric cardiologist and I do cardiac MRI. So if you have congenital heart disease between Chicago and St. Louis, I'm the guy that's probably going to be doing the MRI on you. And so I always made it uh, certain that I was getting sort of this, this high detailed image of the patient heart from day one back in 2009 and turns out whenever jump was being built and they i learned that they had a 3d printer i'm like stop the presses i've got all these hearts that are just waiting to be printed and so sort of it all stemmed from there okay and sister I am a sister of St. Francis of the Martyr St. George, so an Alton Franciscan. So I entered the community about 10 years ago now, um, right when Jump opened, actually, around there. And came to Jump about six years ago, um, where my background is in biomedical engineering. Um, so I work as an innovation engineer on our team, helping with surgical planning and other things that we do as engineers and working with Dr. Bramlett in the AIM lab. Okay, so let's do a little history lesson on the AIM lab. Back to 2013, you and a single engineer, a jump simulation, like you said, you went, wait, there's this 3D printer, I have all these hearts. Tell me about those early days and what you did and what you hoped to do. I always say be curious and like explore. And so as soon as we were given the resources of access to the printer and sort of me access to an engineer to help, it was, you know, between patients in the clinic coming over because it was adjacent to the hospital. That proximity was critical because it was like days and nights and in the middle of things where we were able to explore. And before even Jump started, we had printed all of the hearts that are still on display uh, in the lobby. And the thing that we wanted to do, and we set out very deliberately to do it, was to print a heart that was an exact replica. A lot of people were printing into the stage, sort of print surrogates of the anatomy. We are very focused on a very specific heart anatomy. And we did that, and I rushed it to the OR, to the ICU, before the surgeon went to operate on a very specific patient, because it was a, it was fairly straightforward. But what we discovered when he held it in his hands he looked inside and he's like, oh yeah, the thing we're gonna do is exactly, yeah, this is phenomenal. He said, but what about this other problem? 
And it was the 3D architecture of that problem that he as the surgeon was familiar with, but you know, as a imager and all of the cardiologists who are imagers, we're, we are known for our ability to construct the 3D from 2D images, but it was that the 3D nature of it that revealed this other defect, which changed the surgery. So the very first time that we ever printed a heart for pre-surgical planning, it changed the surgery. That just locked us in. Everybody was like, this is unexpected. You know, we have to continue this and uh, expand this work. Yeah, that must have been a little mind-blowing for you because you're thinking one way and all of a sudden. So the VR for surgical planning became substantive, didn't it? So the AIM lab is advanced imaging and modeling. So it was born out of that first patient and then second and third. And before we knew it, there was real impact and there were resources being applied to this technology. And so if you, if you consider the AIM lab's primary purpose is providing surgeons with 3D actionable, whether it be a 3D physical print or a 3D digital asset that they can interact with before they go to the surgery and improve upon their understanding of that anatomy, then the job of the AIM lab, the research side, is how do we scale it? How do we improve this? How do we make this more distributable and improve this uh, technology and, and share it with as many people in the world as we can? Before we go any further, walk me through the process. So what happens? You take your images, and sister, you can weigh in here too. What is the process to turn a flat dimension into, you know, we have some examples sitting down here in front of us on the table, but walk me through how the process works. The first thing is we have to, you have to select the right patient, right? Like printing just any patient's anatomy for pre-surgical planning may not really have the impact. So it's, it's the complex 3D problems. And uh, congenital heart is the perfect substrate because you take a heart and you take it from, you know, four chambers to two chambers, you know, to all of these different configurations. It's a 3D puzzle. So that's why it just fell right into our lap, really. And then the other major use case that we've uh, been, since 2020, been doing are surgical tumors, especially at the Children's Hospital. And uh, there's tremendous impact because it's the same 3D problem where the tumor is displacing the various anatomy. And so it, there's nothing normal about that they're going to encounter when they go in the OR. And again, we're putting that 3D mental representation into the surgeon's mind so that as they're planning in their mind the day before or even same day, it's a more accurate picture. And so we select the right patient, then we have to make sure the right imaging was performed. That's 3D uh, data sequences in MRI, CT are the two uh, most common use cases where we're getting that 3D information. And that also has sort of, uh, I always say, a rising tide raises all ships. The radiology imaging that we're performing on many of these patients, we're improving the the need for a higher 3D uh, image resolution, which is beneficial just in and of itself. And from there, we move into the process of segmentation. I'll let Sister talk about that. So then after we acquire those images, they come to our team um, and we have a couple different options, but we can take those CTs or MRIs that are patient specific um, and we will go through a process called segmentation where every organ is kind of thresholded and cropped out and 
Um, the manual process is literally to circle the myocardial tissue and to build up the whole thing so that as you take it up, as you build, you can see the inside, you can see the outside, you can see those different effects. So you can see where the blood is in the chambers of the heart versus where the heart tissue itself is. So this patient, you can see both their ventricles and you can see the, um, the valve and there's some calcium buildup, which is why it's in white there. But we're able to see exactly what is going on. So whether it's the heart, whether it's um, the lungs, the bone, the skin, or in the abdominal cavity, and we're looking at a patient's liver or kidneys or um, a tumor that they might have in their abdomen or different places, we're able to really see exactly what is going on and then able to convert that to a 3D file that my team will take and print. As you can see here, we've got a few prints um, and move into virtual reality. So we'll actually do both so that um, instead of the first-person gamer headsets that you put on that the teenagers are all playing with and everyone's kids have, right? Instead, we put our patient's anatomy in there and then the surgeon, the family is able to view in 3D exactly what is going on and it helps us and the patients, so the, the team and the, the family to know exactly what is going on. So God knows us infinitely, but this helps us to know our patients so much more. When, when you think about a CT or an MRI, it's a, it's a stack of images, right? And there are, it's a bunch of grayscale information. And the segmentation process is this, this birth of this 3D model that emerges from that data set. And that requires immense skill. The engineers here are phenomenal. And one of the things that we've really learned to describe better is when a radiologist, I mean, they're trained to look at all these 2D images and put it together in their mind and they, that's their primary skill set. They understand it. The surgeons, the non-imagers, the non that is not something that they practice every, every day. Now, a lot of people are, are very good at it, but this objectifies the understanding of what is in it on these 2D slices into an actual representation, like exact representation of the anatomy. And, and that's, that's a, a critical component of this. And so for comparison, that is an actual man's heart that you did this with. I looked at it and went, that seems huge. Um, but you're like, no, that's, that's what it was. And so you're right. I'm looking at that thinking, okay. So the impact on the surgeons to actually, because there's the magnets that hold it together for the segments to look in. What is that impact to the surgeons? And what did they say to you the first time this happened? I have to imagine they were just like blown away. So it is... The, it's this whole idea of, there are two components to it, this mental representation, right? Like a, a surgeon, the night before they go to bed, they're thinking about the next day. They're thinking about what they're going need to achieve and all of the potential problems. And, and surgery is a lot of avoiding the problems, right? And that means how am I going to approach this specific patient? What am I going to do? What are the sequences? And it is this constant stream. I mean, to have the weight on your shoulders of going in to the OR and using a scalpel to cut into a patient and you know you can't stop until you have fixed the problem, that is, that is such a tremendous weight. And Dr. Fortuna came into my lab on a complex patient, and I'm not gonna go into all the details, but he was in the lab for about an hour. And this is, so 3D print versus 3D virtual. The surgeons have all gravitated towards the virtual because there's more flexibility. We actually pull in ribs, like all the 
structures that maintain orientation. I can't put like the whole chest in print, right? right. Um, and he was in the lab for an hour and he, he left going, thank you, that's, this was so, so helpful. And then I called him the next day right at, when he was done with the OR and he's like, Matt, the, the VR was exactly like I experienced. And he said, I can't tell you how much better I slept the night before mm. knowing exactly what I was going to see. And you know, these surgeons are losing sleep over these complex patients and it, it weighs on them. And by providing this, we're actually giving the surgeon sort of this, this next evolution of tool from CT, MRI, medical imaging to now let me this 3D interactive format. It's almost like the next imaging modality is VR for surgical planning. Okay, sister, I'll turn to you for the, the patient side of things, because again, surgeons, I get, but you show the patients what is going on, don't you? That has to be just mind-boggling for them. Yeah, so it's the patients, it's their family as well, right? So it's their husbands and wives, or their, in the case of our kids, their parents. So um, one of the kids that we showed, um, unfortunately he had cancer, and so when you show a parent and their child what's going on, they've been dealing with it for months at that point, but it's still hard, right? And it's still a part of their life. And actually when they saw it, it's also reality that they're seeing. It's not what they think it is. It's not what they imagine it to be. It's reality. So actually, um, when, when a family that I'm thinking of in particular, when I put um, their little boy in, there was actually fear when we started. And I was like, okay. And so I was praying. I was like, okay, what are we going to do? And so we're going through and all this stuff. And But as he's learning and understanding... And he, you know, and it was talking with the parents, talking with the doctor. But that fear turned into, by the end of the time, he had the controllers and he was like punching his tumor and all about like, I'm going to kick this. And this is like, the Lord is going to help and this team is going to help me. And we're doing all of this chemo and radiation and surgery so that you can live a full life. So they see and they know what is true. And then like we aimed with that knowledge to serve them with the greatest care and love. But I think they feel that as well because they're so much more known. Yeah, you can the, physically see it. Yeah, as, as a physician, we're charged with this, this concept of informed consent for the autonomy of the patient. We need to give them an understanding of the, the situation. And especially in the pediatric tumor cases, that is a tremendous like, step up in understanding. And when, when you consider if you know, anyone, as they understand it better, when you say, you know, it's pushing on this structure or whatever, and then they can see that, they can see how much everything is displaced, and you say these are the potential complications, these patients understand it to a much more significant degree of, I get it, like, this is, this is going to be difficult. And, you know, so it, it's when... I, I, it speaks volumes for the success that the surgeons are experiencing using this technology because the, they come out and say, well, I told you all those you know, complications and we were luckily able to avoid them. And the surgeons will come back and say, I, I need this. So every pediatric uh, surgical tumor case, large surgical tumor case since 2020 has been run through VR. And since 2014, every complex congenital heart disease where it's, this is needed We've uh, done that. We're up to uh, around 400 total mm -hmm. cases between congenital heart uh, tumors and, and a variety of other areas that are emerging um, 
that are um, being utilized in the future, now and in the future as well. Mm -hmm. How long, I'm sorry, sister, go ahead. No, and to just to build off of that, so there's been 400 cases, but each of those is there, that unique patient story, and to like the team is much bigger than us. So like the the team which started with Dr. Bramlin, an engineer, is now a few of us, there's a couple project managers in the lab, and then there's the whole clinical side that at times too, they're the that they're typically the ones that are educating the patient and working with them and putting them in virtual reality and different things as well. So it's been able to operationalize and be in different areas in the hospital as well, which is such a gift. So that more lives and more patient stories can be impacted and touched. I'm looking at the model sit on the table here and listening to the two of you talk, and you make it sound like this very simple thing. And I'm guessing it's really not a simple thing. So, sister, what does it take to get to these models that I see sitting in front of us? So after the image... Um, my team and I will spend hours on a case. A heart case, now that we've had years of experience, still takes us about an hour and a half, couple hours per patient case to segment out. Um, this is an oncology case. So um, this is a third scale of an adult liver um, with three tumors that you can see, it's really actually four. Um, but because we're looking at the blood vessels and how they interact and what the tumor margins are and where is it tumor versus fluid versus the rest of the liver, um, that takes a lot of time and it takes um, some knowledge. And so our team, Dr. Bramlett called us many radiologists, but we're not quite there, but, but we do the best we can. And then we work with our surgeons and our radiologists when necessary for them to quality control because we did not go to medical school. So we need that step to ensure that it is um, proper and appropriate and good. And I think um, it is beautiful for me, for our team. We enjoy it um, because it is a beautiful part of patient care, but it does take hours. I get to pray for our patients for hours, which is such a gift, but um, we're working on some other things that Dr. Bramlett can talk a little bit about to automate the process um, as well. And, and I will add on to that, like we're creating exact replicas. We're not farming this out. The, there are a lot of services that do this, but the, the quality control is, I, I, I feel like it's a little suspect. Um, we're, we're making decisions on surgical planning, and so we need the surgeon or the radiologist or the cardiologist for, like myself, to look at those images and where they've traced out and confirm this is an exact replica of what you're going to encounter in the OR. And that is, that, that's such a critical step. Um, and, it, and I believe because we've held to such a high standard, it has been that extra little bit of nuance that the surgeons can pull out of it. And, but because it takes, like a tumor case can take four oh. to eight hours, you know, we, we can knock a heart out pretty quick, uh, really, <laughs> especially a CT. But the, those tumor cases take a ton of time. And so the research side of the AIM lab is all focused on scaling this and distributing this, right? Like if, if I go to um, another children's hospital and I'm talking about what we do and they say well what does it take and I'm like oh it's easy here's how you do it you know this that and the other and then they're like well that's actually a lot of resources that we don't have and we aren't able to get and so the we have um, several machine learning uh, research projects one actually has uh, already a, we have a patent on how to uh, generate a 3d model off of an MRI we just filed for another patent for brain um, 
We, uh, I just saw on Friday, I don't think you saw it, sister, uh, the, <laughs> the collaboration we have uh, with Bradley University, a machine learning program for CT Heart, where we're, it's generating a beating heart. Mm. And we're going to have, and we've, we've got one that we did manually, and it took us med student all summer to do it. But now we're going to be able to put the images into a computer, and it will pop out a 40 heart beating and that's the type of um, tool that is needed to be able to say, hey, you know, other institution, this mm -hmm. is highly valuable. Here we can point you to this tool that does the automated segmentation, which is a major focus of our lab. And here is the other tool that allows you to view in VR. And the, our ability to share that to the world, we, we know this impact. Others don't really haven't experienced it, and it's hard for them to experience it because of all of these barriers to entry. The more we can decrease and shrink those barriers to entry, the more the others are going to be able to be begin to have their eyes open to this uh, valuable impact. Yeah, I would imagine just, well, I see the excitement. When you're talking about it, it's like telling others. Because we do do cases for other institutions and other patients, right? They can come to us and say, Hey, so talk about that process of how people can access us to get some of what we offer. So we found that it was so beneficial to the surgeons and the families and just to our process. We actually published research that half to 63% of the cases, they changed something about the surgical plan, which is huge. But because we didn't want to keep that gift to ourselves, we um, offer it to others. So um, they can, there's a link online. We'll put it in your show notes or in right the, here. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, but they can reach out um, and we will work with them. They can send us their images and then we'll send to them the 3D files to view in virtual reality or to print. But we just found it was so impactful for our patients. How could we not share it? And we want it to be standard of care. So we're working to make that possible. So there are, um, we are one of the first, the top 30 institutions. We actually think maybe that first five or 10 that we're doing it, but we don't really know. Um, but that are putting in the time and the effort and the materials that it costs to do this to make it more standard of care. Because we find that it's so impactful. If half of our cases are changing because of it, we want it to be not just here and at OSF and in Peoria, we want it to be everywhere, right? Because that's the best for, for the for our patients across the nation that aren't even ours. But so, I, as a pediatric cardiologist, when I go to the medical conferences, I, I finish all my talks with, "Hey, here's our segmentation service." And pre-pandemic, when I was out and about doing a lot of that, we were uh, getting a lot of requests. And so, if a physician, a cardiologist with a, con a patient with congenital heart disease reaches out and requests, we will segment and provide them with a 3D digital print. And now we also provide them with, we always provide the 3D digital assets to them as well, but also uh, the VR. And so, um, and we've, we've done that, I don't know, 50 plus times. We didn't keep track of the early ones. Um, but we have, you know, repeat users, repeat major institutions in, in the US that are coming to us. And again, we're solving, we're, manually solving that barrier to entry and we know that it's been beneficial because they keep coming back and so 
And again, they, those are the ones that have experienced it. When you consider all of the surgeons out there, the ones that haven't experienced, if, if when the surgeon looks at a heart or a tumor, a case, whatever, and they go, ooh, you know, that, oh, I, mm-hmm. I, I didn't have that right in my brain, right? Then they're like, next time they have a complex case, they're just like, I think I'd like this. And, but to catch that one, ooh, patient requires a wider distribution. And so, that, you know, through automated segmentation, through the cardiac segmentation service, through uh, our research and whatever we can do, we're looking to expand that uh, understanding so that others will begin to um, benefit from this technology. And one way we're able to do that is because of philanthropy. There is a huge philanthropic component that allows the mission to continue. So talk about that on how those two marry together to help support the, the life-changing work you two do on a daily basis. Well, in 2013-ish, um, we just, like, days before we had had that first case, and I was walking around with that heart in my pocket. And um, Dr. Vazanelic brought uh, some very generous donors uh, to the la- to the ICU because he was you know this was this was huge back then, and I just happened to be there. I had the heart in my pocket, and it was uh, an initial gift, and then an initial bigger follow-on gift that started the AIM Lab, that has supported. Uh, all of the initial research and uh, has allowed us to provide this segmentation service. Um, it started all of that. And the, there's a fund at OSF that is uh, combined between OSF and University of Illinois that a lot of people don't realize. It's a $112.5 million endowment that cranks out about $4 million in research. Mm-hmm. And so while the initial sort of getting off the ground was pure philanthropy. The other philanthropy that built that endowment is is how we're living now. It's uh, through this internal research grant where we're getting funding for these research projects, and uh, it, which is the natural progression of any sort of a successful endeavor. And, and our, our goals now are to transition from just, not just internal funding, but to really go out and get uh, national uh, federal funding. So how has this technology changed healthcare? I, I imagine the impact is tremendous, but if you could put it in words, how has this technology and this service, what has its impact been on healthcare, and will we just continue to see more and more of it? Well, that's the question that I always ask. What are the surgical outcomes, right? And it is so difficult to get to those surgical outcomes because you're preventing a problem before you go in. And only the most complex cases. So when you can, like, uh, uh, sort of a small sliver or a good chunk of the pediatric tumors are neuroblastic tumors. I think we've done 10 or so or since 2020. And we do, you know, a fair number. In order, we would need, like, 200 cases where we say these are going to get uh, the 3D treatment and these are not. And then because every case is complex. It is just it to get to that point of surgical outcome is going to to take, again, distribution of this ability for many institutions to be able to combine and do that, which we're working with uh, with the NIH. 
Um, and so the, that's really, so the, the surrogate that we, uh, that some engineers at U of I figured out for us, and this is uh, tremendous, We're, we have a research study going on right now where the surgeon will come into our lab. We have a complex, uh, it's a think aloud study, which means we're capturing every word they say, and we're taking uh, those words, and there are a team of researchers that can, every time a surgeon goes, ooh, or ah, or has that, like, some emotion tied to their voice, they're able to score that. And we're able to track the before uh, they've seen the 3D model, and during and after, and um, we're actually tracking them in the 3D space, and we're gonna be able to, we're looking to have that first paper published here uh, we're working on the draft right now, but no one has ever looked at the combination of how a surgeon learns actively using these, this 3D technology. And we have all of this data, and the data is very compelling. We're not to the outcomes yet because we have to solve all the barriers to entry to have the volume. But this is going to, I, I think it's going to go a long way towards convincing many of these uh, institutions that, okay, there is something real. And, it, and I, we've struggled to figure that out. You know, if it weren't for our collaboration with the University of Illinois and the engineers that have qualitative research methodologies, and uh, we wouldn't never would have gotten to this point at least. Sister, anything to add? I mean, it's so the simple answer is yes. This has had a tremendous impact on healthcare, and will continue to have a tremendous impact. Oh, it's changing. It's changing the surgery. If, I mean, we're like. A surgeon yes. going in for a tumor would say, oh, I was planning on going in through the front, but now I realize after looking in VR, I've got to go in through the side, right? Like, imagine in the OR, you, you prep a patient in a specific position, you go in, and then they're like, close up shop, reposition patient, new spot, right? Not even that. Like, surgeries have been changed before they even get there, right? So yeah. we've saved patient surgeries. We, you know, we've had patient or surgeons come back and say, you know what, I saw the VR, but the primary surgeon didn't. So I had to call a timeout. I had to stop us in the middle of surgery because I knew something that they didn't know because of the virtual reality. So I think it just, it changes medicine because the truth is known and the patient is known so much better on that physical level. And I think that's the impact um, that needs to be shared. So there's, I've, I'm huge on this idea of deliberate practice and expertise and experts. Uh, a, a good example is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So long and short, the muscle of the heart obstructs the heart's ability to pump to the body. So when it squeezes, it contracts and it gets into the outflow tract. And there are a handful of surgeons that op, like cut that muscle out. You can cut too little or too much. And imagine like taking, you know, cutting the right amount out of a steak, right? It has to be perfect. Otherwise, there are going to be problems afterwards. The surgeons that have done that for hundreds of cases over 20 years, in their mind, when they go into the OR and they see the patient before them, they have that expertise and those mental images of all of those encounters to know what to do. When we print or put in VR, and even a, a soft print, our surgeons will cut the piece out off of that physical 3D soft print mm -hmm. before they go to the OR. They are now an expert on that specific heart. I so mean, they've held the heart in their hands right. and they do they've, that. Uh, they've performed the surgery before they've gone into the OR. I mean, 
if I were a patient, this, is, this to me, if anything complex surgical that is a 3D problem, I, this, is, this is critical for, I, it's, it's, it's just tremendous. All right, before we wrap things up, I'm going to ask both of you the question. So, Sister, I'll start with you. Did you ever imagine it being this? And when you got into this, into being a, you know, a biomedical engineer and an innovation engineer in your wildest dreams, did you ever imagine this and this impact? And what does that mean to you? Mm, absolutely not. So I think it's just the Lord's providence. I actually entered the community not knowing if I would ever use my degree again. And then to use it in this capacity is just so beautiful to be able to meet people where they're at, get to know them and help the team know them, and then to see the impact from there. I mean, we get calls from surgeons, from the families, from you talked about the anxiety and the emotion from the patients that do get to see it and to get to see Sometimes I talked about the little boy with the fear, but honestly, usually it's relief of my team knows me this well. Like my surgeon knows me. You can see their whole shoulders drop. You can see that like, oh, they, they actually know me. And we're like, yes. Um, so it's just the beauty, the beauty of being known so that we can serve them with the greatest care and love. And you were there from the very beginning. It was you walking in going, okay, we got all this cool stuff. What can we do with it? In your wildest dreams, that journey that started 11 years ago, did you see it getting to this point and what lies ahead? Uh, no, absolutely not. You know, I, I came to OSF because I, I believed in this mission. It's a service organization that is truly focused on a mission of serving patients. And I told my, my boss the first five years before even Jump was on the map, I said, this is my dream job. And that dream job has continued, but it has changed, 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 and sort of grown into what it is now, which is I used to be 100% clinical. Now I'm 80% research. And the, the, the fact that it's not just something that we're giving to our patients, but through the segmentation service, like I was, I was on a bus going from the conf a cardiology conference back to the hotel, and I was sitting next to a pediatric cardiologist who was just taking division head over a large program. I was telling him about the service. And he's like, well, what's it cost? I'm like, it's, it's a service. And in those moments, I'm able to say, we work for an organization that has a service and a, and a mission to it. And it's because of that mission and because of this, this faith-based, you know, effort and focus to give to patients that we are able to provide that, people don't get it. And, and I, the, we, we have a, a paper that talks about the mission and why, you know, this is something that we believe in and because of, because of our faith and because it is integrated into our workplace, which is so unique, it is almost a witness of the grace of God by being able to do that at no cost because people don't believe it. And, and, and in the letter, in our communications, we point when they don't believe it, nothing in life is free, we say, well, this is why it is free. And I'm going to leave it there. We will put in the show notes how to get in touch with, to learn more about this, to get to the segmentation service, because you're right, we need to tell people, and that's how it grows and expands and has even a greater impact. Dr. Matthew Bramlett, Sister Pieta Keller, thank you so much. A very fascinating work and 
more to come down the road. I appreciate you taking time to be here today. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Health Accelerated brought to you by OSF Healthcare. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also find links to any of our episodes at osfinnovation.org slash healthaccelerated.